Hi guys, hi ladies. I can see you, can you hear me? Hi guys. Hey, there we go. Much better. Sweet. If I don't know you, my name's Evan. I'm a pastor down here with Rim Rock Downtown. Before we jump into the Word, which is why I hope you're here to learn more about God through the Bible, I just kind of want to point out a couple different opportunities we have to serve people. First one is in the bulletin, flyer, whatever you want to call it. It's the second one down, Serving at the Mission. We do this the fourth Monday of every other month. So in a week and a half, we'll have an opportunity to go down and feed people a meal that don't have the ability to buy food for themselves. It's such a simple but rich time. You show up for about 45 minutes to an hour, and you get to connect with people face-to-face as you give them their most basic need. It's like 45 minutes of your time. And if you all have a desire or an inkling to want to help people in need, it's such an easy in-and-out sort of situation. So if uh, you want to do that, you got questions about anything, uh, feel free to give me a call or to email me. The second one, um, second opportunity we have to give is right here within our own community. So a man named Joseph, big teddy bear, usually always here, he's now in California. His dad is in hospice. And he hadn't seen his dad in like 15 years or so, and he really wanted to go and see him. And so we were able to arrange all the travel plans for him. He arrived on Wednesday night, was picked up, taken into his father's house, stepmother, all those things. Um, The church paid for everything, but it was my hope and my desire to present this opportunity to you all to help Joseph get there. So we paid the lump sum, but now we have the opportunity individually to chip in because I think it would be so much better for Joseph to know that his family, this group, are the ones that sent him there versus just the big overarching rimrock cloud. And so think through that, pray through that, 20 dollars $5, it does not matter. Just think about the opportunity you have to help a man like Joseph see his dad before he dies. So there's an offering box in the back. You can give online and just note the fact that this is going towards Joseph. Come and talk to me, whatever. Sweet. Let's pray. Focus in on why we're here, and then we'll get rolling. God, you are the reason we're here, whether it's out of serious love or curiosity or boredom. We are here because we want to know more about you. And so we give you the next 45 minutes of our lives and ask that you would give us what only you can give us, a better understanding of you, your goodness, and direction for our lives. Amen. Awesome. So we are going through a series called Together, in which we are looking at the core value, the mission, and the vision of Rimrock. Now this is a second campus of Rimrock, and so everything that Rimrock believes, we believe as well. And so I put a sheet on each row that kind of goes through our five different core values. Uh, We've looked at three of them um, over the past two weeks. Uh, We looked at relationship, uh, unity, grace, and tonight we're going to, excuse me, we looked at relationship, truth. Last last week we looked at grace, and tonight we're going to look at unity. Um, Chris Parrish last week also presented this vision that we have at Rimrock. This vision was uh, created 
this summer, uh, the elders got together for what they called an elders retreat, six hours of coming together, thinking and praying and talking about where we want Rimrock to go. And we landed on this, a community being transformed by Jesus. That's our hope for Rimrock as a whole, to be a community transformed by Jesus. Last week, Chris spent the entire time looking at the idea of being transformed by Jesus. Tonight, I'm going to hone in on a community. I came up with a really corny saying. I wasn't going to say it, but I just can't help myself. You can't have community without unity. All right, thank you. No, no, it's not even in my notes because it's like, no, no. But I figured I'd get a response like that. And literally, look, the word unity is in community. And so we're going to look at the vision, specifically a community, and then within that there will be the core value of unity. In order to do this, we're going to look at the first book of Peter. Let me give you a little context of what's going on in Peter before we get into it. Peter is writing to Christians that live in the midst of a volatile nation. There's a good chance that they are experiencing forms of persecution and are on the verge of a nationwide attack against followers of Jesus. Throughout his letter, he gives them God-given advice on how to live in a nation that does not openly accept what they are basing their lives on. Now, I know we are not in the exact same state nationally, culturally, but there are some parallels. We are now living in a culture that many philosophers and sociologists refer to as post-Christian. One guy defined it this way. It's a society rooted in the history, culture, and practices of Christianity, but in which the religious beliefs of Christianity have either been rejected or worse, forgotten. Now the shift becomes apparent when we look at the political decisions that have been made over the past 45 years. Think about the legalization of abortion, the removal of the Ten Commandments and prayer from public schools, recently the legalization of gay marriage. Even though our country was founded on biblical principles and unknown to many, it still operates based on these principles. We now live in a country and a culture that no longer sees the Bible as absolute truth, truth that everyone should base their lives on. I spent a little time doing some research There was a poll done of 75,000 Americans. 73% of Americans say that they are Christians. 73%, three-quarter. But 42% of Americans fall under the category of post-Christian, which means they said yes to at least nine of the following statements. Don't believe in God. Identify as an atheist or an agnostic. Disagree that faith is important in their lives. Have not prayed to God in a year have never made a commitment to Jesus, disagree the Bible is accurate, have not donated money to a church in a year, have not attended Christian church in a year, and it goes on and on and on. 42% of Americans said yes to nine of these questions, which according to the statistician, they they are now defined as post-Christian. We live less in a time of biblical belief and more in a time of relativism. That means that truth is contingent upon the situation. Apart from the blatant and obvious social infractions like murder, a person has the right to do what is right for them. A little bit more stats. So the divorce rate has dropped over the last 30 years. But so is the marriage rate. The marriage rate is down 30% 
in the last 27 years. That means people no longer see the need or desire to commit their lives to another individual. In 22 states, marijuana has been made legal or decriminalized. People want to do whatever they want to do. In 2017, 72% of Americans believed that same-sex marriage should be legal. Also, websites exist if people want to have an affair. One of the mottos of the website is, life is short, have an affair. We live in a culture that longs to be satisfied. Instead of adhering to the wisdom of the one who made us, we tend to look to our own desires to determine how to live. Because the Bible doesn't condone our selfish ways of thinking, the church is no longer appealing. Rather, it is seen as an outdated and an irrelevant set of traditions. Out of this perspective, only 32% of Americans attend church at least once a month. Now, I know we currently don't live in a place where we are physically attacked for our beliefs, but our culture has the ability to slowly and at times quickly erode our beliefs of, that the God of the Bible is real and that he understands the best ways for us to live. As it does this, we've lost sight of what a church is, truly is. I talked about this two weeks ago. The biblical definition of a church is a community of people who gather together to worship God and support and encourage one another. It's not a building. It's not an archaic, and it's not based on pointless tradition. Rather, it's life-giving and essential. I know, I believe that Peter saw such a crucial importance of his readers understanding what a church truly was. His readers are suffering because of their faith, and something that he hones in on is making sure they understand what church really is. Let's look at 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. Come to him, so he's speaking to believers, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, according to Peter, the church is a collection of followers of Jesus, a community that is centered on the God of the Bible. When they come to Jesus, they are built into a spiritual house or a temple. The cornerstone or the starting point of the spiritual house is Jesus. Do you see the common thread? It's all about Jesus. The church exists because of him. And it's always been this way. Even in the Old Testament, people were redeemed from their brokenness by their faith that God would provide a way. They didn't know how, but they just knew that he would. Now, Chris spent all last week teaching on this. Without Jesus and his death on the cross, we would have nothing. In this passage, Peter quotes Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, see, I'm laying in Zion a foundation stone a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. One who trusts will not panic. Now the cornerstone is the first block placed when building a structure. Everything rests on it and is aligned with it. 
What's interesting, in the Greek, cornerstone is also used to describe a keystone in an arch. It's a piece that rests right in the middle of the two columns. So picture an arch. It's that piece right in the middle. It's called the keystone. Without that piece, what happens to the arch? It does not exist. It's impossible. Jesus is the essential piece of a church. To remove Jesus or to minimize the power of his death and resurrection strips the church of its power and causes people to doubt their need for it. And unfortunately, this is not uncommon within our culture. Churches and entire denominations have removed the centrality of Jesus and the gospel that he brings. But at Rimrock, Jesus and his sacrificial death, Jesus and his victorious resurrection, Jesus and his life-giving words are the cornerstone of our community. Because of what Jesus did, the church becomes far more than a collection of people with similar ideas. We become the temple of God. I'm going to explain that, but just let that resonate within you. We become the temple of God. 1 Peter 2.5, let's look at that again. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house. Paul writes similarly in Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Once again, with Paul's writings, we see that the crucial nature of Jesus within the church. Paul also speaks of what Jesus has created out of his followers, a holy temple. A spiritual house, a dwelling place for God. And is that leaving you spellbound and speechless yet? Maybe we need a little bit more context so we can understand this. So in the days of David, and Solomon, and the kings who followed, the temple was essential to Israel. We're going way back in the Old Testament. Don't let your eyes gloss over. This is where it gets really good and powerful. It was a place where God himself resided in the midst of the nation. It was what constantly reminded them that God was on their side, that they had what no other nation had, a direct relationship with the creator of everything. And the temple was a, tr a place that was treated with reverence and awe, and rightfully so. Let's check out Second Chronicles 6. So Solomon has just finished building the temple, and now he is dedicating it to the Lord. Now, oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to prayers from this place. Now rise up, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests... O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your faithful rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not reject your anointed ones. Remember your steadfast love for your servant David. And then this takes place. One more. When Solomon had ended his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. 
When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Imagine that. This is historical narrative. It means it's history that actually took place that was recorded so that way we could read about it. The all-powerful creator of everything with all-consuming fire coming into your midst in order to reside with you. How could anyone not fall to the ground in total reverence and awe? They just got a glimpse of God's glory who is now in the middle of their nation. No wonder the Israelites were so confident when they went to battle. They definitively knew that God was on their side. This is incredible. But this isn't the only time the fire of God descended onto humanity. In Acts 2, during the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out on Jesus' disciples and divided tongues as of fire appeared among them. In that moment, God himself came to dwell within followers of Jesus. And let me explain why this could happen, why God himself could come within the followers of Jesus. Because of, the, of his atonement, his forgiveness of the purification of the soul that occurred with Jesus' sacrificial death, those who call upon the name of the Lord are spiritually cleansed and then filled with the spirit of their creator. It's really hard to truly grasp. Let me give you an analogy. Anybody here ever done any canning? What's it called when you put peaches and candy, right? We're in South Dakota. Seriously, nobody? <laughs> There's like zero response, so I assume I said it wrong. All right, we've done canning, I hope, right? And so in order, before we put the good stuff that we want to keep safe inside of that jar, what must we do to the jar? Boil it. Purify it, right? And then once it's purified, what do we do? We fill it with the stuff we want to keep. It's the exact same thing spiritually for us. When we cry out for salvation from Jesus and what he did on the cross, we are purified, we are cleansed, we are made righteous. But we don't make those jars purified in order to put them on the shelf, right? They're made to be filled. Same with us. We are purified in order to be filled by the holy and perfect spirit of God. Now I'm saying all of this because the majority of us in this room have God himself dwelling within the deepest parts of who we are, within your emotions, within your mind, within your will. It's what the Israelites referred to as their heart. And this continues to blow me away. I've known this for years and years, but whenever I take time to meditate upon it, as I look around this room and think that that is the reality for a majority of us here, I just can't even begin to fathom how that is, a re- that is true. So let's think again about Solomon and the people of his day and what they got to experience within the temple. Now replace that physical temple with you. When you cried out to Jesus for salvation from your own brokenness, fire came down from heaven and consumed all of your guilt and shame. The chains that held you to sin and eternal damnation and death were incinerated. Then the glory of the Lord filled you. You became his temple. 
You house the eternal God, the one who made everything and sustains everything. That alone should call us to, cause us to fall on our faces in reverence and awe. But it gets even better. Peter and Paul both refer to the temple as a collection of believers. Peter says that each of us is a living stone that is built into the spiritual house. Paul says that together Jesus makes us all grow into a holy temple. Now why does it require all of us to make the temple of God complete? Now I believe the answer is simple. Basic building 101. In order to create a structure that can provide protection and shelter, a structure that can withstand the storms, you must have multiple stones or bricks. A bricks, brick by itself is solid, but is of little value. It can be used as a paperweight, or you can throw it out at a bird, but that is about it. Also, over time, a single brick will slowly deteriorate and fall apart. But when bricks are stuck together, they are able to create a place of safety, a place where love and friendship can be expressed and experienced. And when bricks are brought together, the individual brick can last exponentially longer. The purpose of God's temple was to be a place where people would gather to glorify God and to experience his goodness, his love, his forgiveness, his provision, his joy, his peace. It is a place in which people know that they have the ability to be reconciled to their creator. And I believe this is God's design for the church. This is what Jesus wants to build out of his followers. This is a vision of Rimrock, to be a community, a temple of God being transformed by Jesus. We desire to be a group of people that God brings together who have the desire to love and support each other. If we do this, regardless of the brokenness that the world throws at us, and it throws nasty stuff, we will have the ability to endure. Regardless of where the mindset of our culture goes and what becomes normal, we will have the ability to hold fast to what is true. Let me give you a little bit specific application of how we should do this. I think in order for the church to truly accomplish what God designed it to do, there has to be at the very least three things. One, we must stay rooted in Jesus and his gospel. Two, we have to intentionally love others. Three, we must each play our part. Let me go through this. And I'm not just talking about Rimrock, Rimrock downtown. Again, a church is what? It's a community of believers. And so your church can be so much bigger than this. It can be so much more intimate. You can have different settings in which you gather with believers. So whatever your church is, please think about these three things and what you must bring to that community. Number one, we must stay rooted in Jesus and his gospel. Both Peter and Paul made this very explicit. Without Jesus, the church would not exist. Without Jesus and his redeeming power, the church would be powerless to bring God's goodness into each of our worlds. That love, that joy, that peace, that support that we come here to get, we would not have if it wasn't for Jesus. 
Without Jesus and his sacrificial love for the broken, the church would be full of self-righteous snobs. Like Chris said last week, when a church is no longer focused on Jesus at its very best, it can only be a self-help group that brings about behavior modification. Without Jesus, the church can never be truly transformed. And if you if that is piquing interest and you don't understand the power of Jesus and what he did, listen to last week's sermon. Read Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. It's like the most summative form of the gospel that I've ever found. Or come and talk to me. You have to understand Jesus and his power if you want to understand everything that this life is about and who you are created to be. So the second thing, intentionally love others. In almost every one of his letters to the church, Paul tells them repeatedly to love one another, to be humble and kind, to be selfless and sacrificial. In order to be the community of followers of Jesus that are able to encourage and support one another in the midst of a post-Christian nation, we must approach these types of gatherings or whatever gatherings you go to with the mindset of serving and loving others. Let's see a truly convicting passage. Philippians 2, 1 through 5. If there, is any, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, that's us, that's describing the relationship of those within the church. Make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Please hear these next two sentences, three sentences. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourself. Let each of you not look to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that it was in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to tell about the mindset of Christ. Look it up, Second Philippians chapter 2. And there's so much that we can get out of this passage. But I believe that this is applicable to every interaction we have with anyone. Walking down the street, at a restaurant, all those things. But it has far more, it should have far more impact and it's far easier to do when a relationship exists. So I challenge you. When you come to a church gathering of any kind, Be intentional about creating and solidifying relationships. On a Saturday night, maybe even tonight, break out of your comfort zone and talk to one new person. I know it seems so simple, but yet kind of scary. Conversations are what build relationship. Let me make it even more specific. If there's anyone younger than you in this community or any of the communities you're involved in, which I think there's the youngest person in this community is not even in here, is he or she? So that applies to every single one of us. What I encourage you to do is seek out somebody that is younger than you with the intention of starting a relationship. With age comes wisdom, and wisdom shared is so life-giving. From what I see, mentorships seem to be essential, but are few and far between. 
as the older one in a potential relationship, it is much easier for you to initiate that relationship. Now, if you're scared of speaking into a teenager's or an adult's life, spend time with the kids. Volunteer in one of the children's classrooms. Kids are a part of our community too, and they need to be loved and taught about God for more than just one teacher and their parents. To be a community that supports and encourages one another, we must know one another. For that to happen, we must be intentional about making it happen. So Jesus is the foundation. Be intentional about loving others. And the last one, we must each play our part. Think back on the analogy that Peter gave about us being living stones who are being built into a spiritual house. Each one of us is designed to play a specific role in the temple. Paul uses another analogy of a body. 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or frees. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. He's describing the church. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member but of many. Skip ahead a couple analogies. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. I hope you're understanding where he's coming from. Come back, take some time, meditate on this on your own. It's just simple logic, but it speaks specifically to how God created the church to be. You were redeemed and brought into the people of God, into the church, for specific reasons. God custom made you with talents and passions. He has also given you specific gifts from the Spirit. For the church to function as a temple of God, supporting and encouraging one another, each of us must be willing to play our part. We must each look at the gifts, talents, and desires that we have and then ask God to use us in the way that we are made to be used. Right? Some of you are funny and people need to laugh to cheer them up. Some of you are good at giving hugs, at comforting. Some of you are good at distracting. Some of you are good at listening. Some of you are good about coming alongside individuals and helping them physically. Some of you are generous. Right? There's so many different aspects of helping one another, supporting one another, that we each bring to the table. Now, if you already know who you are and how you want to be used or should be used by God, but need help making that happen, come and talk to me. I mention this all the time, but that is one of my primary roles as a pastor is to help you fulfill God's calling on your life. If you are struggling to figure out who you are, what you're good at, what you have to offer, but you have the desire to be used, come and talk to me. I love listening to people. I love asking them questions, help you figure out who you are and how God wants to use you. Now, as I wrap this up, if our church relies solely on the pastor, on me or Ben or Chris, the worship team and the children's church director, we will be able to do so little for one another. We will become like so many other churches, a place where people go once a week to practice tradition. 
But if we see that we are each a living stone placed on the foundation of Jesus, being built into a holy temple, a dwelling place for God, then our ability to be transformed and to transform others will exponentially increase. Take a moment and pray with me. God, collectively as a church, we desire to be used by you. God, we understand that you have brought us together, that you are drawing each of us to be a part of this church. And we want to be used by you so that way we can transform the lives of others. Spirit, please work within each of us individually. Convict us. Give us incentive to pour into other people. Help us to understand that our role is to love other people. Remind us continually of your goodness, of what Jesus did for us and continues to do for us so that way we can then in turn pour out that goodness to other people. This is your church.